Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? And you know how painful it is. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia Pacific from on and offboarding, procuring devices, to real-time IT support and device management. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. So check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. You will continue to see Western investment continuing to decline. The risk-reward calculations won't change in the next 12 months. As far as I can see, the Chinese economy is not about to take off. What you will see is the beginnings of some, the people who are willing to take the gamble are going to try different ways to exit. You're going to see more people experimenting with domestic IPOs, onshore IPOs, because you can get the money off. For example, if you're investing in LiDAR, or approved industries. You can do a joint venture or a Wolfie or a basically anything that'd be a joint venture will be able to, to try and do some kind of onshore listings. I think ByteDance will stay in this weird suspended state. I don't think we're gonna get a resolution from them. But the big question is like, how much stimulus will the Chinese government throw at the economy? And how far are they willing to go to goose the economy? Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and we have definitely continued our tradition. And this is the sixth year. My guest needs no introduction. Shai Oster, the former Asia Bureau Chief in the Information. So we're going to be talking about China again and what are the most important issues that dominate the tech ecosystem there. So Shai, welcome back to the show. Thanks. It's good to be back. I can't believe it. this is really the sixth time. I will still invite you for the 7-8 if it ever happens. So right. first question is, since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Well, I'm now working as an uh, independent uh, consultant for strategic comms uh, with assorted clients, uh, helping think through some of the geopolitical issues around uh, China and the U.S. So applying some of the experience and things that I've learned as a journalist for the past, oh gosh, 20 years to see on the client side. It's been fascinating to see the issues that companies and investors are dealing with. And it is what definitely the most challenging period of uh, Sino-US ties, gosh, in decades. Mm. And of course, you're now based in Southeast Asia, right? Yeah, I'm now based in Bangkok, uh, which is also very eye-opening because I, for the first time, am able to use Chinese apps. So in Hong Kong, ByteDance pulled out of Hong Kong because of national security law. So you couldn't access TikTok or Douyin in Hong Kong. And uh, to use Taobao, Alibaba, it was kind of like this Frankenstein experience because it was like cross-border and it didn't quite. Um, and so here in Bangkok, I have my choice of, you know, I'm using, I can get on TikTok finally and see what all the hoopla is about <laughs> firsthand. <laughs> I use Lazada all the time, uh, Grab, and also I get picked up in BYDs. I'm experiencing more of China in some ways here than I did in Hong Kong. And it's fascinating to see Bangkok is really, Thailand is sort of a place where you see really the competing uh, US and Chinese spheres of influence, both in terms of politics and in terms of commerce. Uh, I didn't know this until I got here, but the biggest U.S. embassy uh, presence 
since the shutdown of the green zone in Iraq is here in Bangkok. It is a vast presence uh, and uh, for obvious reasons, right? And so you see the roads here, it's kind of like this battle between like, I, I use the metaphor, the pickup trucks. It's like, you know, Ford uh, is huge here. So is Isuzu and so is uh, pickup trucks. Actually, is there, a Ch- there isn't a Chinese pickup truck. Uh, but uh, we're, we're in terms of the consumers, definitely you see the BYDs and the MGs and the, actually there's a Chinese truck, the um, uh, Great Wall Motors is here as ah. well. And so it's really fascinating to see you know, how, how at a microcosm, how this sort of rival commercial and geopolitical rivalry will, will play out. Mm. And actually in Singapore now, I see BYD cars versus Tesla cars on the road. So it's actually heating up right in Singapore as well. And yeah. not to mention the cloud wars as well, because I have Ali Cloud, Tencent Cloud, Huawei Cloud versus AWS, Microsoft Azure and Google Cloud Platform or GCP, they call it. So you know, we are right at the intersection of every competition between tech companies in US and China. So, right, and behind that is, is geopolitics. And then just as an aside, the interesting thing is the, the Chinese autos uh, are good. They're not terrible, right? Uh, China's now surpassed Japan, I believe, as the leading auto exporter, second biggest auto exporter right. manufacturer. Mm. So... We're going to talk about the state of China in 2023 mm. because it's becoming more and more opaque for me. I read the Chinese news in Chinese and also trying to figure out what's going on there. But I think we made some predictions last year. So I want to know what's the report card for 2023. So which predictions you got right or wrong? This is what we usually ask, right? <laughs> you have to remind me what I predicted. It's been such well, a tumultuous year. There w- okay, so there was, so let me ha- have you refresh. There was one that you actually made the year before and you got it wrong, but actually it happened one and a half year later. That is the Sokoa split, which you initially predicted it correct. And I actually went on Twitter, now X they call it, uh, and said that, you know, Shai got that correct. So right. yeah. Well, so it takes Sokoa, a long time. It takes a long time to split. Yeah. So Sequoia finally split. <laughs> <laughs> but the splitting is a little bit strange for me. I mean, they split Sequoia into three parts, right? There is the Sequoia US and Europe they keep intact. Sequoia China is being renamed to Hongshan, which has some roots to Sequoia. It means, you know, red trees and etc. No, um, no, Hongshan is actually the Chinese name of the Sequoia. Correct, man. correct, correct. But it, it means, means, means red trees, right? In, no, no, in it Chinese. means Sequoia. It means Sequoia. Yeah, it means Sequoia, correct. Yeah. They keep that. But then the Sequoia India and Southeast Asia was renamed to Peak 15 Ventures. Yes. That is the difference. And the first question I probably have is, what are your thoughts first on the split? And then maybe I can follow on with your other predictions as well. So, you know, uh, I got it right eventually. It, and I don't know, so don't know if we were, I, I think the idea, we were correct in that the idea was around and definitely the pressure was there. I don't know that it was in it, an inevitability when we first said it, but the pressure now in the US, particularly from Capitol Hill on American investors is crazy, right? These guys are being dragged in before congressional committees. They're under intense pressure to limit their involvement and exposure to Chinese technology, in particular, the things that are of concern is anything that can be dual use. But the problem with dual use is so vague because like, you know, you invest in a jet engine, it can be used for a Boeing, you know, Dreamliner or or for a a military, you know what I mean? So, and then you get into AI and then that's a very complex one where no one, there's no clear answers. And I think, but the actual like 
the pressure is real. And, and I think they just became, uh, and the LPs now are putting pressure on as well on the, the, the GP, the general partners, the, the venture capitals and the private equity. I know, uh, you know, large institutional investors have just suspended any China investment. And so I think it makes sense. And, and basically the theme of, th of this year, I think is what's happening in Sequoia is what's going to happen across China is you're going to have to pick a side. Mm. You want China or do you want the world? Right. And so what happened with Sequoia and a couple of other funds is they decided you just kind of, you like, you just can't function anymore. And so the investors that have that appetite for the political risk can still put their money into Sequoia. Now, as a separate thing, Hongshan now raised a ton of money with it two, three years ago now, and there's no place to put that money in China. Right. So they're looking globally as well. <laughs> so it becomes even more complicated. But, uh, yeah, that political pressure is intense. And I think also the calculation is that going into an election year, it's not, it'll get worse before it gets better. I mean, I'm, I'm a long-term believer in that China-US ties will eventually simmer down. There's too much at stake. There's too much of a cooperation and a symbiosis and, and mutual benefit, right? Like for the relationship to be completely severed. However, there's a lot of space where I think they went too far, right? Like menu, gutting all of your manufacturing might not be the wisest choice, right? There is some logic to, you know, onshoring or reshoring or whatever, diversifying your supply base. Um, there's also some logic from the Chinese perspective to not be reliant on foreign capital for your domestic superstars, right? I've always made this joke that like the equivalent of Alibaba listing in New York is kind of as if Google listed in Russia and Americans couldn't buy rubles, right? It just doesn't make sense. It's like a fundamental contradiction to be a Hegelian about it or Marxist. It's a contradiction that has to be resolved, right? Like, and I think some of what's happening now is that like some of these inherent contradictions are finally being resolved and not necessarily the, the smoothest way, but sort of an, an almost an inevitability that like capital markets, there's some realignment that was overdue, I think. However, there's also going to be, I think, an extreme in the other direction, right? It's a pendulum. But I think everyone's making a calculation that at least for the next year with the elections, China is going to be a sensitive thing for people to do. And so and furthering that, so it's like you're an investor, you're looking at like, okay, where can you put your money to work? Well, China's going to make me get, you know, target of nasty tweets or worse, uh, get hauled in for, you know, some congressional hearings. And then what are my returns going to be? That's the issue. It, like people will stomach a lot of negative press if at least we'll all get rich in the process or we'll make crazy returns. What's happened is that the China returns have not been amazing. And even if you have amazing paper returns, um, you can't get your money out, right? So an example would be ByteDance. At one point, valued at 400 billion, I think when Tiger came in, at the latest that I remember uh, reported now, the, the company's share buyback, employee share buy buyback program is 220 billion, something around the 200 billion yep. plus range. So if you're Tiger, okay, maybe you can cost average down and you know buy more shares and so that overall the price isn't too bad. But the thing is you have no visibility on when that thing's gonna list no visibility. Not only do you have a question of like, will it even survive in the US, which I think it will, but like, 
What will the SEC demand of it in order to list? Setting aside the whole question of China, what are the Chinese regulators going to demand for this thing to list? Will they even allow it to list? They have no incentive to list, right? So, so many, so much money is locked into that. So it's, and the Chinese economy seems to just be like on kind of life support. So the risks, reward don't make sense, I think. And so that's part of the, the impetus for these sorts of decoupling in the, in the investor world. Mm. I, I'm going to take in two different lines of questioning from this. Okay? Sure. So GGV has also decoupled as well. And Sequoia China actually invested into the Australia ecosystem. And I know that they are the actual first investors to Canva. All right. So that's how I got to know that they have been very active there. And even Sequoia, Southeast Asia and India don't touch that. So I will go with the first line of questioning is that there is definitely, as you already rightfully pointed out, the rising geopolitical tensions between the U.S., and China and the decoupling is already happening, but not decoupled to the point where, you know, it's an absolute divorce yet. Why did they drop Sequoia India and Southeast Asia? I find it a little bit interesting because India is traditionally an ally to the United States. So what are your thoughts on why they also got separated out in the process as well? So I don't have deep insight into that, to be frank, but I do know that Sequoia, what people had said is they was, it wasn't an amazing performing part of the company. That, but then I, I'm, this is sort of what I've heard people on the street say, other investors say that India has been a challenging market. And I think also, though, you have to look at the structure of Sequoia Global versus the Sequoia China and India. In that, remember a couple of years, was it a year and a half ago now? I forget the exact date. Sequoia had kind of changed from like a traditional closed end fund to more of an open ended fund, which I argue almost makes them look like a boutique investment bank where you park your money there and then. They would use that for whatever long period of time. They could do, you know, angel investing. They could hold equity for a longer time. The idea was that, like, so much of the value there, the way they explain it is that, like, a lot of the value was being caught in the public market. So why should we be constrained? We can capture some of that value for our LPs, whatever. But it was a different, very, it's a different structure than the closed-end funds that were still being operated out here. So I could see if some of that, clearly there wasn't the geopolitical pressure at all for Southeast Asia. It could be a question of, as I said, some of it's, I think, they just were different animals at this point. And I think also, it looks like they're beginning to compete against each other. And so I already had the sense when they were under one umbrella, I got confused because like India was investing in Taiwan at some point. And, you know, like then the Chinese would invest in Southeast Asia and then the, and sometimes even in the US. And so there was already kind of like this tangled beginning to like encroach on each other. So I, I, but I clearly wasn't a political, a geopolitical issue in the same way that it was for China. One question, which is more on the longer state of the venture capital in China, right? Because now the US funding has declined significantly in fear of US government sanctions. President Xi visited San Francisco. I met President Biden there, you know, so maybe things will simmer down a bit. But what is going to be like for the venture capital in China? Is it going to be really going to be LPs within China or maybe, you know, government capital going in like the way they have been doing it in semiconductors at the moment? So let me get historical for a second. The, the fact that American or Western Silicon Valley VCs were able to have a field day in China is kind of weird. And it's the result of benign neglect and China's foreign currency regime. Let me explain. Benign neglect. Basically, from the government's perspective, internet wasn't technology. Alibaba is just people selling stuff. ICE is just people watching videos, right? It's not like, from their perspective, from the government's perspective, technology was like rockets, cars, planes, semi, you know, that stuff, right? 
which was many of these technologies, the ones where you couldn't invest. So that's the benign neglect part. The other aspect is that the policy is that if you were a tech company and you were a fast growing consumer tech company that wasn't necessarily, was going to grow fast, but wasn't necessarily going to make a lot of money, you couldn't raise money domestically, right? The banks weren't going to lend to you. They didn't understand you. There was no domestic VC, barely a couple of nascent ones, but they function in a different world. Like if you look at VC funds, domestic VC funds, they have a five-year horizon, not a 10-year. And then if you raise Remnant B, you have, because of the currency controls, you have to list within the country. And then all the rules against, you know, listing was a political uh, consideration. You had to like register and it was like, there were all these rules about you have to make money. You couldn't just, well, there's no equivalent to NASDAQ where it's like buyer beware, we're losing money, but we're growing fast, right? So basically, all of these things pushed companies like Alibaba or Tencent or what have you into the arms of, of the West, right? So you have Masa making his gazillion dollars off of Alibaba, Naspers with Tencent. These guys couldn't raise money from anybody else or domestic, right? So that led to this amazing two-decade boom, where it was essentially a playground, right? Where if, if you had any, if you were a Chinese entrepreneur, you basically wanted Western capital because you, you knew that most likely your only viable exit was going to be offshore Hong Kong and the US. And that meant you had to raise dollars. The only guys who have dollars are, mm -hmm. know, right? So, so there's that one aspect. Now that window, I think, has shut down because partly the big consumer plays are gone and the government now is also regulating those big consumer companies, right? It's taken stakes in onshore Alibaba, and onshore Tencent, and onshore ByteDance, right? Because it sees those as nationally important. Um, there's also from the Western side. The other thing is that the next wave, I think, of big investments won't be the same. I think the next wave of big investments are going to be in deep tech, hard tech. So related around new materials, new energy, green energy, biotech, semiconductors, for example. And those are industries that don't necessarily lend themselves as much to VC funding because you need a really, really big check to open up a battery plant, for example. And the new round of funding, a lot of the funding, it's interesting, is coming from the entrepreneurs who are already rich in China. So you have a guy or a woman who has like a solar plant and there it's well, let's branch into batteries, right? So the first check might be from the parent company to an offshore, right? So there's already that happening. Now, that's one side. The other side is, though, can Chinese money pick at the same level? The, the Western VCs have been really good at picking some great winners. Now, when I say Western VC, the managers, the people actually making those bets are Chinese, right? Neil Shen, for example, right? He's Chinese. He has Western money, but he's a Chinese guy. So clearly, you know, Chinese people are very smart. They're able to make great investments, fine. Mm. But can an RMB fund make great investments? And there I would argue that there are constraints, structural constraints that make it hard. First of all, the fund duration, five years, tends to be shorter. So you can't make, your bet can't be as long-term, so you have a shorter-term horizon. Also, most of the money for funds domestically is government money. And right now, the last thing you want to be doing is squandering government money in this current environment. You That's can't right. say, well, we're going to make 10 bets. And, you know, the way with VC, nine of them are going to blow up and one will do great. No, you can't do that with the government's, with the people's money right now. In this environment, you cannot take moonshot bets, right? Mm. 
So people are looking at like, you have to like start showing revenue or, or path to profitability. And then also like the constraints around the capital markets. And then if you look at like, there's also the issue that like, there's a lot of uh, rent seeking behavior, shall we put it nicely? Like the big fund, for example, the huge pile of money for um, to help with the semiconductor industry. So much corruption and, and all the top, so many of the top leaders and uh, managers in that have been, yep. have been under investigation. So that's, that shows you that there's, there's some like structural issues. It's not that there's not the talent there. The talent is obviously there, right? Mm. It's just that there's structural issues they face that make it difficult. So I, I don't know that, obviously there's a ton of money in China. They don't need US dollars, right? But there's structural issues and they can address them, right? It will take time. An example of like the success, you know, so many people poo-pooed the Chinese auto industry when it first started 15, 20 years ago. And look where we are today, where they're make top, like top, you know what I mean? So I'm not going to bet against the China, lo China long-term. Short-term, I think there's going to be a lot of pain. But like another example is, for example, in, in uh, a case that illustrates my point is artificial intelligence. Yeah. Right. China was supposed to be the AI superpower because we have all the data, but then it was like, it's Silicon Valley blew everybody off, right? With chat GPT. That's right. Why? It's the moonshot. It's somebody's like, here's a billion dollars. Let me know how it works out. No Chinese company or investor can do that because of these structural challenges. So the Alibabas of the world can't make a bet like that because they're going to get hammered by their investors, right? Like mm -hmm. Baidu gets hurt all the time because it's like, you know, autonomous driving and this and that, right? Those kinds of like, trust us bets don't get rewarded for Chinese equities. And then the government, again, like you're, you're, you're a government official telling your boss, like, look, I put down a billion dollars. Trust me, these guys are smart. It'll work out. And so now there is around, there's a ton of AI companies and, you know, trying to do the Chad GPT of China. But as far as I understand, most of that money is coming from uh, dollar denominated funds. And it might be managed by Chinese or, you know, not necessarily Silicon Valley money. But it's offshore funds with that structure where they understand long-term bets and the risk. Mm, okay. So what I'm hearing from you is that the Chinese startup ecosystem is going to go through some restructuring. And then at mm. some point, you will come back out and break out again as in more in the hard tech side of things as such. I want to flip the switch to go to IPOs because mm. Ali, Alibaba has, the group itself have recently given up divesting its Alicalp business as a separate entity. And Daniel Zhang left the company as per se and decided to keep it within. Let's look at Alibaba first because what happened there and where do you think the Alibaba group will go? Because they are also facing other pressure, which I'm going to follow up from the, this question. Alibaba in so many ways exemplifies the story of China private enterprise. They were the most successful, embraced by the government, and then they got too powerful and have been cut down the size. And now what can they become, right? It's not cool. Like the government doesn't, Want you to be too profitable, right? Because you're, it's not first yet. It's not harmonious society, right? They're trying to, on the other hand, they need like Alibaba is crucial infrastructure. Alipay is the bank, Alipay and WePay are the banking system, right? And then they have millions and millions of merchants that they support. So, you know, the, the government needs them to thrive or needs them alive. I don't know if they need them to thrive. The, I never understood the plan to break up the company. 
because I thought always the Alibaba story was about synergies. Oh, our value is that we're this chaebol, Chinese chaebol that has this and that and that and all of these things together create vast opportunities and synergies. So we mm. own, you know, movie studios because we have the platform, because we have the ticket sales, because this and all of this will generate more value, right? And then to suddenly sell investors, wait, we were wrong. We will unlock the value by selling all these parts. Now there is that, there's definitely like that theory that, you know, when you have a conglomerate, the individual parts are more valuable than the whole. But I think in this case, to me, it felt like not, that wasn't, you were doing it under duress. It was a fire sale. It wasn't like a company that said like, wow, you know, we've looked at all the P&L and we see that we are unlocked, we're, you know, we're going to provide more shareholder value by spinning off all these profitable revenue generating units. It felt more like, well, we're being cut down to size, right? That's the message that I got or mm. I took is that it, to me, it felt like an acknowledgement of like, oh, well, we, we got too big. But now they're reversing it again and saying, well, because, you know, the investors weren't enthusiastic about it. And, and like, for example, cloud was not, was good, but not amazing. And then I think initially cloud was supposed to be huge overseas. And that's obviously in this current geopolitical environment, difficult or more difficult. I think there's a lot of distrust, even in Southeast Asia for Ali cloud, you know, justly or not. And then cloud-based infrastructure, you know, yes, there's a lot of clients in China, but anything that's enterprise facing in China just doesn't make money because Chinese companies are very reluctant to spend, right? If you can hire five people, they'd rather do that than, you know, automate. Like just the fact is that software as a service is not taking off, right? So that's one of your biggest clients. And now that the economy is slowing down, companies are going to be more and more frugal than before and less willing to, to spend money on technology. Mm. So then I give you a counter example, right? Like Pinduoduo mm. has successfully entered the US market with Timo as compared to Alibaba many years back. And, you know, Jack Maivan stayed in, in the US for one year and I don't know what he have done there, but, you know, why do the second generation CEOs, if I take a look at ByteDance, very successful with TikTok and now, you know, whether the US wants to ban them, you know, don't ban them. And then Pinduoduo with Timo is now starting to eat Amazon's lunch there, you know, my former employers, and then even like Xi'an, you know, they are able to figure it out better than the, what I call the former BAT, the Baidu Alibaba Tencent. Why is there such a big difference of companies able to go into a global market versus companies who were supposed to be huge and very powerful, even through the second wave of companies, but yet these, this second generation has able to break through? So there's a couple, I think there's, there's two, there's two main things. Amazon paved the way for Timu and Xi'an and the rise of TikTok paved the way for everybody. And let me explain. What Amazon taught Americans is that brand names don't matter. Right? Amazon, if, if I, now if I click on Amazon and I try to find a brand name, it spits out all the Chinese like alphabet soup gobbledygook brands first. And also like, that's partly in response to consumer demand, but the consumers themselves also realize that like, hey, look, it kind of looks, the, the t-shirt looks the same, whether it's got a Nike swoosh or a, a Vikey swoosh. So maybe I'll buy, like, you know what I mean? So I think Americans learned that it's all coming from China. So 
maybe the brand name doesn't matter as much. I think they've lost. I think Amazon taught Americans that J. Crew ain't cool. And you do see that gap and all these traditional retailers have really struggled, right? I think that my, my analysis is that because the consumer has been taught, has, has kind of figured out that like, oh, they're all coming from the same factory. So why am I paying a premium when I can just get roughly the same good for a quarter of the price? So I think Amazon cr- planted the seed for the consumer to understand that brands don't matter. Price does. Right? It's true also for Walmart, right? No frills, Costco, yeah. all no frills uh, movement, right? So so that's one thing. That didn't really exist when Alibaba first came, right? That's something that's, I think, happened in the last decade and been accelerated in the past five years. That like the 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 movement away from brand loyalty. Because mm-hmm. at some point the Americans understand that like the they, they begin to understand that it's still coming from the same place, that, that the tag on it doesn't make the quality better. Uh, and some of the brands did that to themselves because they were trying to chase it. You know, they were producing lower quality goods and, and people wise up. The second thing that, and so, so that didn't exist when Ali first went out, that sort of openness to these random, and you said, you literally go on Amazon now, it's hard to find a branded product. It's either Amazon's own or like all of these like, as I said, alphabet soup name where it's clearly some, you know, enterprising guy in, you know, Hangzhou. Uh, now, the other thing is that is the rise of TikTok. And I don't think in social commerce and, and the power of like Instagram and TikTok in influencing people's decisions on what to buy. Uh, and that didn't exist as well when Ali went in. And it was very natural for somebody like a Shein or a Timu to like partner with TikTok because it's like, you know, like they're Chinese, right? So there's like that natural like, and also the idea of the game, the other thing that's interesting, so that whole advertising platform that was a natural fit for Chinese companies that they understood that they had, like they experienced that it, like, again, like Douyin wasn't a thing when Alibaba first went out, right? So. There was something at home that a Chinese executive could look at and say, oh, I see. I, I understand how this works. They got it in the U.S. We should put money onto that. Right. And, and so there's that. There's that. And then the uh, yeah. So, so those things didn't exist when Ali went out. And, and I think the um, pervasiveness and, you know, TikTok's person, uh, popularity, I think, is just so powerful as, as a way to, to oh, to build your, your brand. And then the third thing I just, as I was talking there, I remembered the gamification of commerce. That was something that Ali does to a certain extent, Taobao does to a certain extent. But what Shein and PDD did, they also gamify the e-commerce experience. I don't know if you've ever been on Shein. Mm, yeah. For me, it's an anxiety-inducing experience, right? Because it's like, buy this. And like you, you like... You give people points if they do that. And if they post a review, they get free shipping. And if you buy now, there's all this like four pieces left. And like all of these techniques that had worked in China turned out to work kind of universally. It wasn't just a Chinese thing. You can use all these ways to nudge people to buy. Let's give you use Agoda versus use booking.com. It's the same company, but the experience in Agoda for me gives me a heart attack. Because that's why it keeps giving you Agoda is, for those who don't know, Agoda is a travel booking uh, website based here in Southeast Asia that's owned by booking.com. 
And what Agoda will do is they'll give you like, you ask for a hotel and be like, oh, here's a great hotel. It just sold out, sucker. So you're like, oh my God, I want to buy, I want to buy. And I need to book right away. Look at all the good ones are going. Um, so some of these techniques that I think, again, were just emerging at the time that Ali was going offshore were more mature. And so there was all that, like there was a, a playbook that these other companies could apply. And they also realized they were willing to spend huge amounts of money to build market share. I mean, insane amounts of money spent on advertising to build market share, which I don't know that Ali was able to do or willing to make that gamble at such a huge scale. Because I don't know that they, you know, they wanted to test it out. I think it was an uncertainty. But once you saw that TikTok had already done it, it kind of made sense Like, look, okay, if they're already there, you can follow on. We can maybe build that on. So I expect my guess is that Ali is going to sit idly by and just watch this market get beaten by everybody else. Because after all, they also have a massive supply chain and a massive, you know, that's where they can win is they still have those enormous relationships with all those factories in China. And all the guys selling onto the Taobao platform are desperate to boost sales overseas. So I, I think it's only a matter of time before Ali looks to expand. I mean, it does have Lazada and it does have, is it AliExpress, which is doing okay in Europe, Russia, Middle East. So I expect, I don't think we've heard the last from Alibaba in terms of its overseas expansion. Have insight into how will they try to beat them in the same game? I don't know, but definitely they face the pressure to show that growth uh, mm. and overseas is where that growth is going to be because the domestic market is now, you know, as everyone knows, it's kind of grim. I'm going to flip to another prediction that I think we always talk about is the who is going IPO next year uh, problem. I think we discussed ah. the Baidas IPOs for two years, okay? And the st status of TikTok being banned in the US is still in flux. There was a famous congressional hearing on my fellow Singaporean, uh, Mr. Chu Soju, you know, this year. And now there's a, you know, the, for the new Binance CEOs, Singaporean as well, you know, it seems that they are the face of uh, how we can come clean type CEOs. So from now to the end of 2024, there's two questions on my mind, right? One is TikTok going to get banned in from the US or they could go to IPO, but not in the US. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, let, let, let's flip a coin, right? Like mm -hmm. this is, I will bet that they will not get banned. It's too, even though the chorus of people calling for them to get banned is growing every day. And many entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley now are also calling for them to be banned. Even um, Karis is just asking them to be banned too, you know? I mean, yeah. for a tech reporter, she is also on, on the line of thinking. Yes, they really, they're not winning. The whole issue with TikTok and the anti-Israel pro, I, you know, full confession, I'm Israeli, so I have skin in the game. Uh, and, and I try to be objective, but if, if, you know, if you're going to get angry emails, you know, so be it. Um, mm. But TikTok has definitely emerged as a platform where, and I'm trying to put this as delicately as possible, where pro-Hamas, anti-Israel content has flourished. And TikTok has been on, put on the defensive scrambling to handle that. Yep. And it's kind of a tough spot because on the one hand, they don't want to be seen like, they're like, wait, you tell us don't censor. Now you want us to censor. What do we do? But like, mm. and some analysis, you know, some people have published analysis claiming that overwhelmingly they believe sort of portraying TikTok as actually favoring the pro, I won't say pro-Palestinian necessarily, but I guess you can, Hamas and Palestine, different things, but 
accusing TikTok of having a bias against Israel, let's put it that way, mm. and which TikTok has denied. But that has not helped uh, their cause at all. The problem is still, you can't, it's tough to ban somebody for expressing views you don't like in the US. Yeah, for saying men and, yep. Yeah, that's a tough one. And there's national security grounds, but like, again, I don't know, that's a tough one as well. So the hurdle is quite high. And then attempts to pass legislation to toughen these rules, difficult in what is, a, you know, in, in the current state of political semi-function in the US. Uh, so I don't know, you know, w- while sentiment is clearly not on TikTok's side, an increasing number of political and business leaders uh, in DC and Silicon Valley, I don't think that the hurdle can yet be overcome in terms of an absolute ban, in, in, in my view. But then again, like, you know, it's we're entering the silly season of politics. Um, the one thing that Democrats and Republicans agree on is, you know, the, the China threat, which uh, we can talk about that another day. Uh, and, and TikTok is seen as, is, is painted as, you know, the leading edge of this effort of, of, of the China threat. So, uh, but I would probably bet that they won't be banned. That doesn't then, mean that I think they're going to have an IPO um, because the, the IPO, other question, right? Because yeah, as I said earlier, the IPO isn't, you know, my understanding of the SEC regulations, like you can kind of list anything you want as long as you disclose all the risks. So you could list a paper bag and say, this is a paper bag, buyer beware, the bag may rip, right? All it does is hold things. But if people are like, we love the paper bag, right? Like literally blank check companies, right? You can list a company that says we are a blank check, like a SPAC, right? Effectively. Mm-hmm. As long as a buy, as long as you disclose all the all the words, and in fact, you know, there's SEC and China have actually reached a deal on the whole accounting issues. So there's actually some progress has been made in, in, in making it easier for Chinese companies to list in the U.S. So I don't think it's the I don't think the SEC is the problem. Although, will the underwriters be nervous about underwriting them? Like, will banks face pressure not to underwrite a big? Uh, maybe I don't know. I think the bigger risk is going to come from Beijing. Mm. But the but I actually went to check all the S1s of all the tech companies. Regulatory risk was on them. So actually, no one has actually read the S1 and really read the fine print. And when the but, regulatory crackdown happened, everyone scrambled and said, how did this happen? I'm like, it's already printed in the S1 of all yeah, these but, Chinese tech companies, right? Uh, right, but that's like saying like, you know, it might rain tomorrow, right? It's like, of course, there's regulatory risk. It's China, right? It's, no one. That was like, you know, CYA, cover your ass language, boilerplate. It wasn't. I don't think people didn't read it. I think people didn't believe it. <laughs> right? I mean, you know, like, it's like everybody put money in, in online tutoring. Yes, it was clear that the Chinese government was not super excited about it and wanted to, but it was like, but no one thought that one day they'd be like, hey, nuke, just get it, nuke an entire industry, right? It was believed that like, okay, they're going to tweak around the edges and sort of act rationally. That's the thing is, as an aside, what I hear from people on the entrepreneurs and the executives in China is they're like, we just don't, 
like you cannot expect the Chinese regulators, the Chinese government to act in a rational way. That's what the Chinese are saying. Not like some nut jobs in Capitol Hill, but the Chinese are like, we just don't know because so things that you think would really be against the self-interest of China, they might do. So for example, nuking entire industries, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, but that's like Asian parenting, right? There are no carrots, only sticks. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's true. Come on. I'm born a Chinese. I know this from day one since I grew up. There are no carrots, only sticks, okay? And so everybody is just ho was hoping that carrots is going to be, but they all got sticks now, basically. Yeah, but so, so, but that's the thing is that like fear of like, well, if we do something and, you know, Chinese companies are as scared, right? Like the, 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 the DC geopolitics, like they can kind of figure out, like you hire lobbyists to get lawyers, you get advisors, you can kind of like you go and meet with people. You can sort of, it's there, it's a problem, but you can kind of navigate it, right? It's like, this is the senator who's on, this is the congresswoman who's on that. Like, okay, let's go. Let's see what the common ground is. But China, like, you just don't know, right? Like, no matter how connected you are, the person you're connected to may suddenly be in jail. Or, you know, the big guy decides that, like, whatever, you know what I mean? Like, so that's the thing is the uncertainty where there's no expectation of rational behavior. And so, okay. and for TikTok, again, remember, it has Douyin, which is the data of, like, hundreds of millions of Chinese users. So that has to get regulatory approval. Would they list that in Hong Kong? Yeah, but like, I mean, the Hong Kong market is dead. They're still firing, laying bankers off, right? Hong Kong is not the solution. Okay, then I'm going to just go into one more topic. You and I read the papers. We know that Huawei in China has successfully fabricated the 7 nanometer chip in the latest Huawei Mate Pro 60 Pro with SMIC. There's very good Bloomberg Financial Times reporting on how they managed to do it. This was actually came out, I think there was an open letter by Maurice Cheng from TSMC in Taiwan. He wrote an open letter to say that it is just a matter of time that the Chinese semicon will reach the stage of what the Taiwan is in terms of use. Because you making use on semiconductors just basically continuously material science experimentation until you get it, right? It's just a matter of experience and he expects Chinese China to catch up. And like you said, don't bet against them on auto industry. I think we couldn't bet them on against on them on replicating a semiconductor. But I think one question was came to me last year was uh, when I asked Chris the order of chip wall, and he said that it's impossible to replicate the entire semiconductor supply chain. But it looks like China seems to be able on the surface can do this. I put two quotation marks here. What are the chances of, for China to actually able to create? the entire semiconductor supply chain by themselves. This is a question that I think some of the American media got it correct. Is it the more you try to sanction them, the more they try to build it themselves, ends up of accelerating them, building it, rather than the effect you want to achieve? So the sanctions were twofold, right? Part of it is to like slow down their development. I don't think there was any, I mean, I'm hoping there wasn't this naive belief that they could stop it cold in its tracks, right? But it's also like, should American companies be the ones supplying chips for their missiles? Right? Mm -hmm. Like, fine, you're going to develop, like, in, from my perspective, like, okay, China is going to develop whatever technologies it wants, both for commercial and military use. 
Should American companies be the ones supplying that technology, though? Arguably, no. If, if, and, it, and especially when there are situations where clearly interests are not aligned, right? And so it, I think in one sense, it makes sense for that, for those sanctions, even if they don't and can't stop China's de- technological advancement, right? Of course not. The, I think the other idea was that it would slow it down a bit. I don't know if that's been as successful. And again, replicating the entire supply chain, I think there are still parts, right? Like uh, the machines that make the machines that are still, there are certain bottlenecks, but like some of the package, like there are elements, there are many other elements of like the packaging and the way you, you know, it's it's a complex supply chain that the Chinese are able to do. Um, And also the Chinese are willing to absorb losses much more, right? Uh, TSMC has to have efficiencies of, you know, 90% or whatever the numbers are. Yep. Huawei doesn't. It's a private, first of all, because it's a private company. Yeah. They can make a choice. They, they don't answer to board of directors and angry shareholders. It's not a government owned, as you know, at least they claim, but it, it can, uh, and I'm sure it can get access to very nice loans at cheap interest rates, and, and it can produce stuff at tolerances and efficiencies that would be unacceptable for commercial enterprise in the West, but mm. which they can do in China. And I, and I looked at the example of like early days of the silicon industry in terms of like solar panels. Mm. The early days of the solar panel industry in China were a disaster, right? Tons of government money, just complete waste, corruption, oversupply, da 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 But the goal wasn't to make a profitable company. The goal was to like boost alternative energy, solar and wind. And it succeeded. And eventually the companies actually became really good. And now those are, you know, they dominate the global market, right? So the Chinese can tolerate much greater losses than a Western company. So it's going to be a messy and inefficient process, but of course they're going to get there. But the economies are having a little bit of hiccup at the moment then how are they going to balance that then? I mean, the real estate industry is now having a real big steep and, you know, there Look, is... The, the savings rates are still high. There's still plenty of capital in China. So it's not, you know, mm. yes, there's lingering unemployment there. It's not the boom times of a few years ago, but it's not grim. The things that are seen as national priority will still be able to, to achieve that growth. And the fact is that people are still buying those Huawei phones, right? So somebody's still got money. Consumers are still buying, um, at least on the margins, right? There's still money. Uh, and then if the government makes something a priority, it certainly has, it's not a bankrupt country. There's still, hmm. yes, real estate is, is a mess. People's wealth is locked into real estate, which means they're going to spend less And there's sort of this whole, it's a country with the blas right now. But it's not a country that's falling apart, and something that's a national priority will still get access to capital. Mm. It reminded me kind of like Japan in the '90s when it starts to go down. But if you, a lot of people said Japan lost a decade, but you, if you and me go to Japan today, they're still doing okay. You know, yeah, it's, it's not like you know, thing. yeah, it's not like as if you know, it's just because your GDP, you know, you stop growing doesn't mean that the country is not functioning. It's functioning very well. Yeah. Tons of tourists go there. People are happy. I, I find it very difficult to, you know, square that circle. You know, sometimes sure. what people tell us, 
versus what you really see when you're there, you know? Yeah. I mean, to be silly, like I, I was in China recently and I felt like I was going to write one of those stupid columns of like the, you know, the, the American investor who goes to Shanghai for the first <laughs> time. I've seen the future. So I was in Guangzhou and I was like, dang, I mean, you know, I hadn't been to China since before COVID. And I, I got to say, the highways were as smooth as silk. I'm, I'm used to like New York City area, the metropolitan, like where it's just like potholes, you know, crumbling American infrastructure at its finest. And uh, so what I noticed was that like the infrastructure was amazing, which I know is a cliche, but it's true. <laughs> the cars were all new. They were all electric. I'm, oh my goodness, I've seen the future. It was like, you know, for a struggling, and of course, this is one of the richest cities in China and all the caveats apply. Uh, and the neighborhood I was in, yes, there were empty storefronts, but, you know, at night, the restaurants were pretty packed. People were boozing up and buying fancy, you know, mm. Japanese style meat, whatever, you know what I mean? Like, it looked like, you know, an economy in the doldrums is doing okay. Now, granted, 20% youth unemployment, not a good thing. Right. There are still there are issues and like the anxiety is there. Even when you talk to people, that definitely is there. Um, uh, but that doesn't mean it's like imminent collapse. It means that they have issues they got to confront and fairly urgently. But still, you know, and, I, and this isn't like deep Guizhou or, you know, the, the hills of Yunnan. Right. This is like a major metropolitan center. And also, interestingly, it's manufacturing and export oriented and some of the exports thanks to Timu and Sheen are doing well. So, you know, not a complete picture, but still I was impressed with that sense of like, as I said, like the cliched American newspaper columnist of like, I've seen the future. Now, the other interesting thing was the flight from Bangkok was all business people. When I went to the Chinese embassy and that's the visa center to get my passport, it was crazy packed with Thais trying to get passports, visas rather. I mean, like insane waiting, seven hour waits. It was just like, okay, people really want to go. So the flights were packed. Flight back was all Chinese tourists. So, you know, did I see, I saw one, I saw two other foreign, like foreigners, big noses during my entire time. Mm. So yeah, there's definitely, and then the airport was relatively empty. But so definitely it's a big shift. And I know that people are still, you know, reducing their presence in the mainland, particularly what foreign companies are, are reducing their Western companies are reducing their presence. But there's definitely still, you know, it's a billion people. There's going to be pockets of wealth and what, et cetera. Yeah, I think China is still going to be very important in this century. So this is just a passing phase. I see that before in Japan and Korea. Uh, in the 80s and 90s. So semiconductors have an impact to the development of AI in China. So we see Chinese-based LLMs like Li Kaifu's uh, 0x.ai, you know, and many AI LLMs are going to show up. But I, I don't think we are ready to talk about the AI wars yet. So, so I think it's probably something that we'll do next year when things are a little bit more clear. So the age-old question that I always want to uh, end with is what are your predictions for 2024? I think we're coming with a U.S. election, presidential elections, and there's going to be quite a lot of things happening in next year. So, and it's the year of the dragon, by the way. <laughs> okay, this, I, that sounds like violent, but I, the dragon's supposed to be good luck for the Chinese. So, it's, yeah, it's, it's supposed there, to be good luck for the Chinese. That's right. There you go. 
So, okay, definitely we'll see a lot more China bashing because that's the one thing, as I said, Republicans and Democrats agree on. Will the China bashing result in actual legislation? I don't know. I definitely think you will continue to see Western investment continuing to decline. There's no, the risk reward calculations won't change in the next 12 months. As far as I can see, the Chinese economy is not about to take off. What you will see is the beginnings of some, the people who are willing to take the gamble are going to try different ways to exit. You're going to see more people experimenting with domestic IPOs, onshore IPOs, because you can get the money off depending what kind of sectors you invest in. So for example, if you're investing in LIDAR or approved industries, you can do a joint venture or a WOFI or basically anything that'd be a joint venture will be able to, to try and do some kind of onshore listings. I think ByteDance will stay in this weird suspended state. I don't think we're going to get a resolution from them. But the big question is like, how much stimulus will the Chinese government throw at the economy? So far, everything they've done has kind of had tepid impact. And how far are they willing to go to goose the economy? Because once there's a real sense of change, then investors might start looking again at China. But right now, it's going to stay status quo where you you got to look at China and think, you know what, I'm going to get bashed on Capitol Hill. I don't know what my exit is. Even my internal rate of return isn't going to be amazing. Let's figure out something else. I do think you're going to see more and more Chinese companies going overseas and more and yep. more Chinese companies or entre entrepreneurs launching overseas as separate companies. It's happening in Southeast Asia now. Yeah. And well, I think that there's going to have some impact to the Southeast Asia entrepreneurs mm. and our access to the U.S. market. Oh, tell me. Okay, I want to hear this. Yeah. So if you think, if you extrapolate, just think about the other scenario like AI development. You can't get the 800 chips or the even the H100 now, right? Mm. You're better off offshore your entire AI training somewhere outside China because the sanctions are not good. And where are you going to do it, right? Yeah, well, I wouldn't say Southeast Asia, but I can also say Europe as well, you know, where the cloud providers are there. And as you and I know, the Chinese cloud providers are in Southeast Asia too. So that's the question mark number one. The other worry thing is that for any Asia Pacific company, let's say they're going to do business in the US, will they get tainted by the Chinese influence to go into the US market? That's one big question because... I, I read a lot of history. I know when the Japanese were being interned in the World War II, they did they didn't they, they they took the Chinese along and put them in the internment camps as well. So they don't care. As long as you look Asian, you are in the same group, right? I so, know that. Okay. So so I think this is something that from a Southeast Asia point of view, as far as for myself, I'm completely neutral. I like both sides to be friends and start talking to each other, but please don't expect me to take sides because it's a pain. <laughs> so I think that is the dilemma for what the Southeast Asia tech ecosystem. But I think it's also good the Chinese entrepreneurs are going to be in Southeast Asia. It's going to make us compete better. I always think competition makes you better. So some people are worried about, you know, the Chinese entrepreneurs completely. So I even have VCs like, I'm not going to invest in a Southeast Asian company who starts up in the tech. I'd rather invest in that Chinese entrepreneur who came from Shenzhen who is now setting up the company in Indonesia, and I'll bet the million dollars on this guy than the Southeast Asian guy. So these are the kind of dynamics oh. you're not seeing within this region itself. And I think this is a very interesting 
dynamic that goes, as we're going to see on. That's fascinating. I mean, look, uh, C is a, is a great example of like. That's right. Um, and so far, no complaints, right? Facing no issue. It's funny. There's one industry that seems to be doing okay, uh, which is games. Mm. No one's yet talked about banning Chinese gaming companies because they no. Are- no one also knows that Tencent owns five of the eight most powerful gaming studios too. Yeah. I joke. I, I think Tencent at some point is also going to have to pick a side and figure <laughs> out what kind of company it is. Is it an international gaming company or is it a domestic uh, infrastructure you know, platform? And I, which I argue that WeChat is basically bigger than China Mobile as far as telecoms and mobile connectivity goes. And it's right, like no one's gone after Tencent yet. Like for some reason, they've maybe they have amazing lobbyists. I don't know, but it's no, not I a think, secret. No, no, no. I think Ponyma has done the right thing. Just keep quiet and do your stuff. That's the one thing. He's not flashy. You hardly hear him talk. Right. I agree. Um, you don't you hardly, but you hear a lot from Jack Ma all the time. Pony's not so, I mean, you know, he's, he does his, you know, speaks at like uh, NPC, as I recall, he's made some proposals. So he's not secretive. He does speeches on occasion, but you're right. He's right. nowhere near as prominent as Jack Ma. I, I think it's fascinating that Tencent, though, has not faced the same level of scrutiny. No, I think they respond believe- well to the government's demands as well. I think when it came to the gaming crackdown, they would literally just put all the fences up and said, we are doing what you are, you exactly tell us from China Daily, is it? Yeah, that's the... And they went and exact all the parental controls immediately. Right. Yeah. So they know the... I think they read the stakes much better than the rest of the other Chinese entrepreneurs. That's... Uh, and I wonder why. Yeah. In terms of overseas, I don't know that they've run into the same level of scrutiny as Certainly nothing like TikTok, even though as many Americans play Chinese-owned games as watch TikTok. Now, granted, you're not getting, you know, it's the same kind of content, but in the heightened state of paranoia these days, you could twist anything into into any shape you want. Hmm. Um, So, yeah, so the big questions are, the other question marks remain Didi and Ant. For Western investors who have appetite for China, they're looking for some key moments that'll be like, okay, now it's safe to go back in again. That's going to be Ant, Didi, and ByteDance. And there's no clarity on any of these yet. And so until those three happen, I think everyone's just going to be wait and see. And yeah, there might be some, you know, around the edges. In the meantime, the Chinese entrepreneurs are going to go offshore to try to launch separate things. Even the China-based, the China-focused VCs are also looking overseas to invest in, the, in those Chinese entrepreneurs, whether they be in Silicon Valley or Southeast Asia. No, they're hiding in Southeast Asia for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Shad, many thanks for coming on the show. And we're going to continue to have this conversation and let's see how good our predictions think is going to get to. In closing, two quick questions. Any recommendations that have inspired you recently? Oh my goodness. Uh, 
I it's drawing a total blank right now. You'll have to, yeah, I'll have to pass on that. I'm rereading. Uh, I'll tell you one thing. Weirdly, read Wind in the Willows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, read, it's a uh, great book. Yeah, it's a weird book, and it ends with a race riot, basically, where when the weasels take over Toad Hall and. Toad and his friends come in secretly with guns, swords, and bats and beat the Bahakis out of the weasels. And I was like, is this some kind of class allegory? Uh, and then it gets darker when you realize that the story was written for the sun and the sun committed suicide. It was just all dark. But it was fascinating to read this book again. I, I do urge everyone to, to revisit ch childhood literature as an adult, and you'll kind of be surprised by the things you missed the first time. And uh, I have been diving deep into, I don't understand why Spotify is having so much trouble because it is my lifeline. I am like doing so much weird 70s psychedelic soul music and my, my family hates me. They're like, who are you? you listen to music. You weren't like, you're not a 90 year old man. Why are you listening to this? And I'm like, as I make breakfast for the kids and then do my embarrassing dad dance. <laughs> So, so avail yourself to Spotify before they run into more trouble and start. You want to talk about giving literature to kids. I have actually got one recommendation. I would recommend the 38 letters that uh, John D. Rockefeller wrote to his son. Uh, there's a book oh. on that. Surprisingly, both my eldest daughter and my uh, second son, they both urged me to read a letter every night for them. And as a, as a startup founder, I gave myself today, uh, as I was reading those letters, it gives me inspiration to fight another day. I wonder how much they they are influenced by it, but they enjoy the letters, surprisingly. All right, I'll dig them up. I'll dig them up. Yeah. Sounds good. Last question. How do my audience find you? Beijing Scribe? Uh, at, yeah, Twitter is at Beijing Scribe still. Uh, and my email is shy.oster at gmail.com. It's spelled S-H-A-I dot oster o-s-t-e-r at gmail.com I'm, I'm on linkedin as well uh and uh yeah uh, i'm eager to hear people's comments thoughts suggestions mm. and we'll continue to have that conversation and find, find us on youtube linkedin and, and even tiktok as well so once again have a happy new year and we look forward to the year of the dragon <laughs>